Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. Modern slavery, it's when you cannot refuse, deny, or leave a situation of work for either commercial sex or labor. From Adesible Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to Adesible Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. October 18th marks Anti-Slavery Day, and this date provides an opportunity to raise awareness of human trafficking and modern slavery into our daily conversations and responsibilities as global citizens. Our guest today is Davina Durgana an award-winning international human rights statistician who has developed leading global models to fight human trafficking and assess risk and vulnerability to modern slavery. Davina is a senior statistician with Walk Free Foundation, an initiative fighting to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and is report co-author of the Global Slavery Index, a global study of modern slavery conditions by country. Davina was named to the 2017 Forbes list of top 30 under 30 in science for her work on statistical modeling, human security theory, and human trafficking. Davina Durgana, welcome to Adesible Voices. Thank you, Megan. I'm thrilled to be here. Davina, before we get into your work and career, I'd love to get to know more about your, your childhood and your upbringing. I read that you went to high school in, is it Comac? Yes. Comac, yeah. New York. Is that Long Island? It is Long Island. Yeah, I'm a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker. So were you born in New York? I was born in New York. I did not know that. That's <laughs> fabulous. Did you grow up in New York then too? Yeah. So I, I've grown up in New York. I actually only came to D.C. for undergrad, for college. Um, uh-huh. I went to GW and then met my husband there and he started working for the government. So I went abroad for grad school and came back and did my Ph.D. in D.C. And I've been there since. World <laughs> traveler. I love it. So then what was your childhood like in Long Island in New York? Yeah, I had a really happy childhood. I'm the child of um, Guyanese immigrants. So those are South Asian immigrants that were then in the Caribbean due to the sugarcane industry from the mm-hmm. British Empire. So kind of an interesting corollary to my career now in slavery that, you know, my ancestors were indentured servants in the Caribbean. So kind of interesting. Oh, that's so serendipitous, <laughs> isn't it? How interesting. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your parents. What what did yeah. they do or what do they do? Yeah, my parents are kind of mavericks. So they came here from Guyana. Um, they, of course, had to start over and, and get their education here. My dad's an engineer, and he now owns a company with my mom working on telecommunications. So he builds cell towers throughout New York and New Jersey and, you know, the tri-state area. And do you have siblings? I do. I have two little sisters. Oh, so are you? You're the oldest. <laughs> I am the oldest. Oh my gosh, quite something to live up to. I bet. <laughs> I bet the pressure is on in your family. Oh, um, we all have our strengths. I'd say. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So, Davina, what was it like growing up in the Dragana uh, household? What did, What kind of characteristics did your parents encourage and foster? My parents were very strict. I think that was a, a pretty normal thing for, you know, raising first generation Americans, thinking that they wanted to hold on to cultural values, but still integrate us into the school systems and the culture here. So that was a bit of a challenge, I think. 
But, you know, as the oldest, I think we always have a, have more of that than our younger siblings do. So I think they were really focused on careers. They were really focused on what these studies could mean. They were very focused on our grades and making sure that we were really working to our full potential. It was it was kind of a a very loving household, but also very um, motivated. You know, almost everything had to do with school and homework and how we could be the most, how we could achieve the most with what we had. So was there a point in, say, your, you know, elementary schooling that everyone realized, including yourself, you were really good in math? <laughs> yeah, actually, um, my dad tells a funny story now that um, in middle school, I was in a, I was always in honors and accelerated classes, but that I was in a particularly difficult math class for, I think it was sixth graders, and it was like calculus and some really insane what? things. Yeah, it was an interesting trial program they were going through, but it was funny because all of my classmates who I'd continue on into the international baccalaureate program with. And like, you know, we stayed together in the same cohort. Everyone was having trouble and parents were complaining that they were spending six hours a day on homework with wow. um, with their kids just for this one class. And my dad came and he was like, I've never once <laughs> done yeah. homework with Davina. <laughs> and the teacher was very funny. He was like, yeah, your daughter's really good at this. She's I crushing just, it. <laughs> he's like, I just don't think she wants to be good at it. Like, so I was really also very good at French and Spanish and foreign language. And I love travel and, and work and culture. So I think that kind of since they were both easy for me, I just chose what I liked better. <laughs> so then was there a moment where, you know, statistics came into mm-hmm. your world? And then how, how did that, like, what was that moment? And how did you recognize that, hmm, I'm pretty good in the statistical arena here? I was a, a national merit, like, qualifier. I, I knew that I was good at math. But I don't think statistics itself came into my career path until I was actually working in the field. So I was working on a national hotline, talking to victims every day, and understanding that the the rhetoric that was going around about children and forced um, and commercial sexual exploitation for sex was not the the common case that we were encountering, but the data wasn't really being analyzed that way. So I kind of realized that we were manufacturing policy to protect children when in the United States, they already have a lot of protections compared to undocumented workers, foreign nationals that are coming in, and that labor trafficking was probably being given a disservice in the policy. So I actually Mm -hmm. knew that going back to do my PhD, I'd want to focus on statistics because I didn't think that the policy matched the data. How interesting. So you basically noticed a gap, it sounds like, in the system. It was almost like I knew that um, I could do it. And I knew that other people probably couldn't do it as well. Or maybe if they did, they just didn't have the interest to do it. So for someone that worked in my field, I knew that I could make a difference in that way. So I guess the question that I want to ask is, having identified a mathematical gap, how did you piece together you know, a solution that said, you know, in order to achieve better answers, I would have to apply this type of math. Yeah. So that required learning about all kinds of advanced modeling and then basically using a mix of those skills to then create a vulnerability model or a risk model that I use now. And actually, the model I created for the United States for my dissertation, I'd use a different version of that in my global work with the Global Slavery Index. And we will definitely touch on that later. I still want to, I want to flesh out your Mm -hmm. childhood here. Yeah. Um, so so now you're really deeply entrenched in, you know, the intersection of international relations, human rights and fighting modern slavery. But as a child, what did you dream about growing up? What did you want to be? 
As a child, I wanted to be the president. I thought that being in politics would be so <laughs> I love much that. fun. And I also really like diplomacy. So actually, even as a, a young kid in middle school, I was a student ambassador with this program called People to People. And I did a couple of trips with them. I went to Australia, Greece, Italy, France. It was really interesting. We did homestays. We were able to like live and go to their you know, schools and meet people our age. I actually went to a few math classes in France and other places before my French was as fluent as it is now. And it was so funny that we were all able to understand each other and to follow the same math. So in a lot of ways, my interest in foreign language communication, international relations is fostered by like a universal language such as math. I love that as a child you wanted to be president. What was it about, <laughs> what was it about being president that attracted you as a child? I think it had to do with policy. I think it was more that I wanted to see policies that I thought were fair and equitable and included others. And it seemed like people in power could do that. Eventually, that evolved to diplomacy because it also meant representing interests of powerful countries in other places where voices might not be as heard. So I think at the end of the day, it always comes to representing people and the policies that matter. I mean, what I'm really hearing is at a very young age, you had a heightened sense of social justice. Yes, definitely. Where did that come from? So I think that a sense of love for commun community, a love for your environment is a, is a big part of how I grew up. So we had a really strong church community. I was part of their youth group. I was president for a few years. We did a lot of um, community service work. Actually, the first time I encountered modern slavery was on a mission trip to El Salvador. And we were, you know, I was teaching math and, and English, and we were getting very close to these uh, children in the community when right before we left, we had to go to the funeral of a young girl who was related to one of the, the students. And, you know, MS-13 has basically been pretty prominent in El Salvador since their civil war in the 80s. So it's just like a very stark reminder that this type of thing can affect people you care about. And Sometimes I think about this and my commitment to community really shown through a lot of how my parents approached the world and everyone around them. Um, they have a strong commitment to their religious communities, but they also have this transcendent understanding. My mom's actually Hindu and my dad's Christian, but they're both really well-known figures in each other's churches. In fact, my mom is the treasurer and teaches Sunday school in our Presbyterian church, but she's not even she's not even Christian. So it's just a, a very interesting kind of open-minded atmosphere. And as I got older and, you know, I became a volunteer firefighter and an EMT, I, I really care very deeply about relating to people at the community level, at the individual level. And the more you do that, I think the more you see that social justice is really just advocating for the rights that we, we all deserve. You mentioned earlier you spent time here in the nation's capital um, pursuing international relations at both George Washington University and American University, ultimately earning your Ph.D. with distinction from the <laughs> latter. <laughs> And then you also pursued a, a second master's degree in Paris, France, while studying human trafficking at Sorbonne. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Yeah. And the American University of Paris. I'm curious, why Paris? Why France? Yeah. So at that time, I was still kind of thinking that diplomacy was going to be my future career goal. So I actually took the LSATs. I did well on them. I applied to law schools. And I was making a decision between what I thought would have the greatest impact on policy. While I was here, I actually worked for both the Public Defender Service and the Attorney General's Office in D.C., and I just realized that a lot of the social justice I would do as a lawyer would be very fixated on small individual level cases, which are very important. But there are structural things that make that less impactful. For example, public defenders have many times more cases than attorney generals do. So when you're thinking about the quality of legal provision you can give those groups, it's really dependent on your capacity and what kind of resources you have. 
to me, that was a bigger fight that I probably wasn't, I was going to get very upset about, I think, in the long term. So um, I went to France mostly because for my work with the UN, you typically want to be fluent in at least three of the five UN languages. And because I knew French, Spanish, and English, I wanted a complete professional and native fluency in French. What age were you then? You'd you'd reference the El Salvador um, experience. What age were you then? I think I was 19. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What happened? Yeah, so we it was really an amazing experience. I, I spoke Spanish enough to be our group translator. So nice. I uh, was able to, aside from teaching English and math to a bunch of kids, and they, these are rural community kids outside of San Salvador. So we had classes of maybe 30 or 40 kids every oh. session, two or three times a day. We got very close to them. In fact, I was still working at the Kingston My Spanish, and one of the young boys, my, my family was there with me as well, oh. and one of the young boys that we got very close to, my dad wanted me to try to translate to his mother that we would adopt him, like basically take care of his fees, finance his education, not take him with us necessarily. He had a family. It wasn't. But I, I didn't really um, know how to explain that in Spanish. So I, I said adoptivo, which, you know, obviously sounds like adopt. And, and the mother got very worried. She's like, you can't <laughs> take him. And I was like, no, we don't want to take him. We just want to pay for his schooling and support you guys. So it was a very funny situation. Oh, we had a great time there. That's great. And then it was also during this trip that a young girl had confided in you about something traumatic that happened in her own life. Yeah, so actually one of the students had come to the whole group and said that the body of one of her cousins had been found. So they invited us to a funeral. And actually, like the, one of the last things we did in El Salvador with that group of people was go to a funeral for a child who had been abused and harmed by MS-13. And when you think about the culpability there, there was no autopsy. There were no police involvement. It was kind of an expected thing that if a child goes missing and hasn't been heard from or seen that this was this would be kind of par for the course. And it was very upsetting because there was no real reason it couldn't be one of the kids that we came to love. So coming back to the U.S., I started working with every group I could on human trafficking, thinking that international trafficking was going to be my, my full career, but actually realized that it happens so much in the United States. So it was an interesting career transition where my dissertation was actually focused on the U.S. And now, of course, I work more globally. So it's just an interesting weaving of these these many interests. I guess when you came back and, and shifted your priorities or reshifted them, mm -hmm. what, what was going through your head? What were you thinking and feeling? I felt helpless, I think, because, I mean, there wasn't an infrastructure to really understand how to help at that time. I mean, even when I came back here and I really got into human trafficking, I was still defining human trafficking every time I told someone what I was interested in. This was pre-taken, so nobody really knew what the crime was, and it wasn't something everyone was talking about. And that's partially, I think, what fueled my family's concern that this wasn't going to be a viable career path, that no one would ever fund research on this or work on this. So we're very lucky in that way that it it did become such a popular topic and something that people are funding, and it's, it's made a real difference in how we've approached this. So now there's many organizations doing really great work. You can talk about legislation in almost every country that talks about modern slavery or is considering, you know, many countries are considering slavery legislation. You have also an opening, I think, at the UN level of other issues that can be included in slavery-like practices. So now we're talking about forced marriage. We're talking about the use of children in armed conflict. We're talking about the use of child brides for um, terror groups. I mean, there's so many things that I think are helpfully being brought under this umbrella, and it gives us so much room to try to engage with different actors. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. 
This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Davina Durgana, an international human rights statistician. October 18th marks Anti-Slavery Day. Davina is fighting slavery with her own unique superpower, <laughs> mathematics. As a senior statistician with the Walk Free Foundation, she helps produce statistical analyses on modern slavery around the world. She was named the American Statistical Association's 2016 Statistical Advocate of the Year and serves as several expert groups for the United Nations, the Department of Justice, and the National Science Foundation. Davina, you touched on this a little bit earlier right before the break. What is modern slavery today, and how is it different from maybe the past images and concepts that we've come to think of in mass media? Yeah, thank you, Megan. That's a great question. So basically, modern slavery, and especially at the UN level, we'd call we'd follow basically the broadest definition of this. It's It's based on something called the Palermo Protocol, but effectively, it's when you cannot refuse, deny, or leave a situation of work for either commercial sex or labor. Obviously, a lot of other practices can fall under that. So another one that we really talk about is forced marriage, where someone may be compelled to marry someone forced by their community without will, and then, of course, forced to provide domestic service or sexual services by form of even reproduction. So it's kind of an interesting crime that covers a lot of things. Those are people that are working on deep sea fishing boats, obtaining the tuna that we we can purchase so cheaply. Those are people in nail salons and massage parlors and restaurants. I mean, they're pretty much everywhere. It's actually the opposite of what the mass media um, has put out there over the years. You think of, you know, um, handcuffs mm-hmm. or you think of, I don't know, some, you know, darkly lit alley, mm-hmm. but this is actually happening in broad daylight yes. is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And it's fueled by consumption, which is the most compelling part of modern slavery to me is that unlike other crimes like rape or sexual assault, there's not always a clear justification that we can follow or model. But there is an economic incentive for trafficking. People are doing this for cheaper labor, cheaper profits, or they're doing it to make more money themselves if they're a trafficker. So, I mean, it's something that we can actually look to economically and try to figure out a way of of predicting. So, Davina, where in the United States is human trafficking and modern slavery happening the most? And what are some things, some signs that we can maybe be on the lookout for if we happen to be suspicious or uncomfortable about a situation? Absolutely. So in the United States, you know, we have a very diverse um, society. We have a strong economy. We have a lot of opportunities for exploitation whenever you have the confluence of both very wealthy and very poor people in the same place and also an economy that requires a lot of low-wage service workers. So one of the things that you want to think about is that a lot of agricultural workers, especially right now with the immigration climate being so unclear, um, is that a lot of people are very frightened to come forward for assistance. So people that are maybe undocumented or don't have um, a permanent status in the United States are, are going to be more hesitant about coming forward even for unrelated crimes like domestic violence or sexual assault because they would fear deportation. So in a climate like this, I think you see a lot of foreign national workers at high risk of exploitation and heightened vulnerability because they're less willing to come forward. So what that would look like would be in agricultural settings. You're talking about strawberry pickers, people that are working in tomato fields, 
there are a lot of great groups doing wonderful work on this, such as the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and other advocacy groups. You also would see this in any low-wage service profession. So that could be waiters, waitresses, nail salons, massage parlors. That could be short-order cooks at restaurants. That could be people who work um, tend bar. It could be it could be anywhere, really. And so what you want to look for are conditions where people seem unduly miserable or to be working for very long periods of time. If you see in a work establishment like a nail parlor, a nail salon or a massage parlor that there appear to be mattresses or hot plates or things that would imply that people may be living on the work premises and in undesirable conditions, those are things that you would raise that would raise questions for me. Also, typically, um, massage parlors, nail salons that are open very late, like un- unreasonable hours, maybe 24 hours, or seem to have a lot of male clientele or patrons, that's an indicator that exploitation may be occurring. All of this to say, though, is that there's a huge spectrum of labor exploitation everywhere. So one of the things that I would recommend that you do if you see anything suspicious or anyone that you're concerned about and you don't quite feel like it rises to the level of calling 911 is to call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And you can reach that um, by dialing 888-373-7888. Or they, you can also text them. They have a text line. So I think they're available in multiple different languages, and it's a great way to talk to experts on modern slavery. I actually used to work on that hotline myself, and it's a good opportunity to just talk through your concerns with someone who's there to listen to you. They're open 24-7, and to basically give them the information you have, and they can kind of give you some more questions to ask. If it's a restaurant that you like or a massage parlor you've been to before, they can kind of help you walk through what, what follow-up questions you might need to ask, or even just at that point, you may just report it to them, and then they have the right contacts to follow up on them. Great. So that number again is one 373 7888 And we'll also have that on uh, linked in our show notes. As I was doing my research, I'd, I wasn't quite clear on is what's the difference between slavery and human trafficking? Yeah. I mean, are they two separate things? That's a really good question. Actually, people in the field really struggle with this because it sometimes has become ingrained. Human trafficking was traditionally what the United States called modern slavery. So Some people will use human trafficking, modern slavery interchangeably. I also direct research for all of the Americas. And in Latin America, it's very common to use this term human trafficking to cover all types of slavery. However, at the UN level, I think the argument would be more that there are certain things that wouldn't quite be considered human trafficking, but would be considered modern slavery. And forced marriage is a pretty good example. The United States has one of the first national legislations against human trafficking, but actually that does not include forced marriage, whereas a lot of modern slavery practices would include things that are like organ trafficking, forced marriage, things that are corollary to this core issue of forced labor and forced sex. Where is human trafficking and slavery happening the most? Yeah. So, you know, it is a good question. And of course, the Global Slavery Index does look at prevalence in terms of like, where is this happening? Traditionally, what we would say is anywhere that you have a very large population, that's also quite at risk. So places like China or India will have just many more victims because they have just an enormously large population. That being said, we also really consider countries like North Korea, where state-imposed forced labor is a huge problem, where political dissidents are put into forced labor camps, and we've started counting that. So it's an interesting thing. I think as you look at this question of where are people's rights not protected, where are victims made more vulnerable, where do cultural practices disempower key groups of the population, 
And then also where are there economic incentives for companies to exploit cheap labor? So that's kind of the question when we start looking also at, you know, the Vietnamese apparel industry, the Bangladeshi apparel industry, um, chocolate from Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa. You're really looking at a confluence of a lot of those factors. For those interested in, in you know, digging further into the, the Global Slavery Index report, we'll have that in our show notes. I think this would be a great time to pause and ask, tell us about your work specifically. I mean, mm-hmm. what is it about what you're doing in your role um, that's new and transformative? And how is that making an impact across the field? Yes, of course. So one of the really exciting things about working for Walk Free is that we actually have one of the biggest research budgets for modern slavery in the world. And that's given us so much flexibility. So we have a global survey research program of over 48 countries where we actually have the opportunity to work with Gallup World Poll and ask questions on nationally representative surveys about modern slavery. This has never been done before at this scale. So we're really fortunate to have that. I also um, manage this project with the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and the International Organization for Migration, where we're actually working with governments in Europe to use administrative data that they have in lists to use statistical methods to estimate slavery. Because typically, surveys will only work in developing countries. So for developed countries like the United States and most of Western Europe, it's very difficult to to find slaves. So in order to do this, we're using lists of victims that they've identified to figure out how many we may be missing. We've also innovated in um, understanding government responses in terms of what can governments do specifically to address this crime. And of course, we are developing every day this vulnerability model that looks at what risk factors lead to slavery. The subject itself is such a delicate situation because does this rely on on also self-reporting? Because I can imagine that, that, you know, not a lot of people, if they are held against their will, how would they self-report? And then two, maybe some of the ones that manage to escape their situation, there are probably risks around self-reporting. So how is that, how is that managed? Right. So getting data on modern slavery is one of the most difficult things. Um, typically, the survey programs we do are household-based surveys. So often we'll find people that either they themselves or someone in their network are currently experiencing slavery. But that's typically post-experience. And that also presumes that they can identify as a victim, which many times people have difficulty doing that. So we do a long process of cognitive testing, and we ask about conditions of former work or labor situations to try to understand if we would define it as modern slavery, even if they may not necessarily use that label. But it is it is very difficult. And actually, we're running into a similar challenge in Arab states and the Gulf, um, the Gulf countries, because getting survey research done there is very challenging. So we're actually working with return migrants in sending states, so states that commonly send workers to the um, to the Gulf region to try to understand more about what their experiences were like. As I began looking into some of the statistics on human trafficking, it's quite astonishing what I found. According to the United Nations International Labor Organization, there are about 40 million people living in slavery worldwide, which Mm -hmm. is an estimated one in 200 people. With everything that you know about and around the subject, what is it that you're finding that surprises people the most around human trafficking and slavery statistics? I think the thing that surprises people the most is is not just the sheer scale, because I think a lot of times we lose perspective when we think about a number that's quite that big. What does 40.3 million people mean to us, really? 
But when we look at things like the Global Slavery Index that breaks that same number down into these regions and by country, it gives you a sense of scale. The issue is much worse in this country than it is in this country based on all the available information we have. And I think that gives us more ability to kind of make sense of that information and advocate for policy to change it. I do think people struggle with understanding what slavery looks like today. I think they really have a tough time understanding how supply chains for businesses are implicated in this, and specifically our role as consumers. I think a lot of people really struggle to understand that when we look for the cheapest items, candy, chocolate, clothing, anything, that at some point in that production chain, that cost savings is coming possibly from the exploitation of labor, particularly when we know things are just far too cheap to be sustainable. I think that's a great opening for us to talk about how can we as consumers, Mm -hmm. as as just normal people going about our normal day-to-day activities, how can we be empowered to to make a change. What can we do? So you mentioned cocoa. Is that chocolate? That's chocolate, yes, right? Yes, chocolate, yeah. So then... And chocolate's a big offender. That's a tough industry. I mean, a lot of the chocolate comes from the West Coast of Africa. And there also is that confluence of factors we talked about before, large vulnerable populations, a lack of labor regulations that protect them, lack of oversight. So often, a lot of major producers will be implicated in some way. That being said, there's some really good examples like Tony's Chocolonies. They sell their chocolate bars at REI and other places like that. Very good chocolate. It's a Dutch company. We work with them actually to make sure that there isn't um, trafficking in their supply chain. And specifically what they do is they actually build the price of their chocolate starting with what a living wage for the worker and producer would look like. Ah, I see. Which is really fascinating. So I think when we look at good examples of companies like that and support them with purchasing chocolate that might be a little bit more expensive, but is also very high quality and still meets these social justice concerns we have, I think we're in a really good place. The other good news on that Mm -hmm. is that the U.S. actually has some really amazing importation laws where we prohibit the importation of goods that are known to be produced with child and forced labor. Mm -hmm. That said, we still import a lot of goods with Mm -hmm. um, that have been produced this way. But a lot of things like stevia, other things have been um, subject to what we call withhold release orders, which means that they are stopped at the ports of entry before they can enter our markets. So stevia is the sugar, right? Yes, the sugar alternative. Yes. So is sugar one of the categories? It can be. It just depends on the labor conditions and typically the countries that they come from. But there are some industries that are quite high risk. So Vietnamese apparel, Bangladeshi apparel, Chinese um, electronics. Timber, actually, from Peru and Brazil is part of a logging industry Mm. that's often done illegally and not sustainably. So when you're talking about timber from those countries, you're often talking about illegally logged areas of the Amazon that are actually protected and are completely deforesting and destroying ecosystems and habitats. So as a consumer, if I see a label that says made in Vietnam and it's, you know, a piece of clothing, Mm -hmm. uh, should I be questioning? The best um, the best way to do this actually would be to look at the company itself. So depending on what company is producing it, there's now in the United Kingdom and in France and uh, some other countries legislation that requires all major companies to report on what they're doing for modern slavery. So you can actually find it on their website. Lululemon has a, uh, a little uh, tick on their website that lets you see kind of like what their statement is. It doesn't mean that they'll prove that there's no trafficking or slavery, but what they will do is say, these are the steps we're taking to make sure that this isn't a problem. 
if you have brand loyalty, which some of us do at this point, and there are places that we like, things that we like, just ask those questions of those companies and just try to make an informed decision when possible. That information is becoming more available to consumers now, so it's not as difficult as it once was. And our cons- like as consumers, we have the most power. So this also happens in the local economy. Typically, when you buy local or fair trade, free trade, that's a pretty good assumption that the supply chain's controlled because it's coming from someplace that's understood and there's a smaller supply chain. But also, you know, your favorite restaurants, it's not unreasonable to ask questions if you notice that the short order cooks seem to be working all hours or in your nail salon, if the women that you're working with seem to not have their, you know, certificates pasted on the wall. There are just small laws like that that we could easily check up on to just see if everyone's being treated okay. Probably the best and most easiest thing to do is just feel empowered yes. as consumers. Yeah, um, ask, to the ask the questions. Exactly. You know, I wanted to touch on the the career path you've chosen, and it's a subject matter that's not an easy one. Mm. What keeps you moving forward, especially on the tougher days? Thank you for asking that. You know, burnout is a real problem, and especially with all the grad students, PhD students that I mentor, it's something I think about a lot is, you know, I could not stay in victim direct victim service provision forever. It was not making me happy in the long term. And I knew that eventually I would burn out to a point that I wouldn't even stay in the field. And I think a lot of our colleagues get to that point because they don't necessarily think there's another way to be involved. For me, using statistics, working on policy, and still getting into the field, but not quite as much or as intensely as I had been, was a really good way for me to stay in the field long term and build a career here. I think we don't. we should be less apologetic about what our needs and happiness Um, requires. And I think there's a lot of ways to contribute to these fields. Um, Also, personally, you know, I think it's important to try to keep a very full life. So it's very easy to get sucked into the, um, the very demanding work that we're all doing and the traveling. But Everywhere I go, I still work out. Um, I try to make it a point to um, to keep up with my CrossFit schedule wherever I am. And actually, by September, I should have CrossFitted in 50 different countries. Wow. I'm so excited That's about great. it. What a bucket list. <laughs> I, I love photos, it. <laughs> like group photos of me with all of the um, gyms. And like usually I try to pick up the coach if it's not, they're not too big, you know. So yeah. it's kind of fun. And of course, having dogs helps a lot. <laughs> I love all the threads that run in your life. Um, and one of the threads that... I'm most excited about is, you know, your role to young women, women that are aspiring mathematicians, statisticians. How does that make you feel? That's really such an honor. I mean, that's probably of all the things that we can do in our in our lives, all the prizes we can win or the recognition we can gain. I think at a certain point, you realize that we're just not going to solve the problem ourselves, that we have to bring up other people to help us continue these changes and to really make cross-generational changes here. So to hear that is really inspiring. And actually, I do a lot of work with um, Girl Scouts of America. I uh, have overseen a few Gold Award projects. And um, in New York, my mom's on the board for uh, the Suffolk County Girl Scouts. So it's always been a huge part of it. I'm a Gold Award Girl Scout, too. <laughs> I've always loved women. I've always loved supporting other women. I've had some great female mentors that have really looked out for me. And I, I feel an obligation to do that for other women, too. The other problem is, of course, Unless we model the behavior we want to to be seen by others, it, it becomes more difficult. So when I was doing this work, of course, a lot of people weren't working in human trafficking and statistics, especially not for a PhD. And I think at the time it was kind of funny because I, I had such a great experience. But I know that, you know, sometimes I would 
walk into a room of statisticians and I would be mistaken for my own intern because, you know, how could you oh be so gosh. smiley or dressed in, in bright colors or wearing, you know, your hair down and curly? It's just a funny thing that there's an expectation that women in STEM or just statisticians in general have to look and perform a certain way. And I, I really enjoy breaking that mold for not only ourselves, but also for the women that are coming up so that that example and that precedent's already set and they don't have to feel uncomfortable being exactly who they are. Dr. Davina Durgana, thank you for being <laughs> on the show. It's been such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure for me, Megan. Thank you. Dr. Davina Durgana is a senior statistician with Walk Free Foundation, an initiative fighting to end modern slavery forced labor and human trafficking, and is report co-author of the Global Slavery Index, a global study of modern slavery conditions by country. Her current work focuses on constructing modern slavery models and profiling vulnerability to this crime in the United States and around the world. Dr. Durgana will be featured in the upcoming 2021 children's book, Wonder Women of Science, 12 amazing STEM geniuses who are currently rocking the world by Candlewick Publishers, highlighting the work of today's most outstanding women scientists. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L.com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Next week, we get to explore the world of dance with leading American choreographer, dancer, and cultural figure, Dana Tysoon Burgess. Dana presently serves as Smithsonian's first-ever choreographer-in-residence at the National Portrait Gallery. Tune in to hear how Dana's childhood influenced him, how he defines dance, what it continues to mean to him, and what inspires him today. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand-new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian-American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.